Welcome to Galaxy Forum. I'm your host, Melissa Kaplan, and we're here to explore issues and ideas that matter to the LCC Galaxy, to discover how the work of our stars connects with the community and how the community connects with us. Our conversation today is about the intersection of art, athletics, and social justice, and I'm so very pleased to welcome my guests, each of whom could be the focus of an entire episode of Galaxy Forum. Stephen L. Bridges is the interim director of the Eli and Edith Broad Art Museum, an internationally renowned contemporary art museum on the campus of Michigan State University in East Lansing, where he has been senior curator and director of curatorial affairs since 2015. Previously, he was curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. His master's degrees are from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, one in art history, theory, and criticism, and one in arts administration and policy. His research and curatorial interests focus on the intersection of social, racial, and environmental justice. And he is curator of the Broad's current exhibit, Resistance Training, Arts, Sports, and Civil Rights. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Melissa. It's wonderful to be here. Our other guest, Charles Moore, joining via WebEx is an art historian, author, and curator based in New York, and an LCC alumnus. After receiving degrees from LCC in 2004 in criminal justice, and simultaneously his bachelor's from Ferris State University, he pursued a career in banking and became interested in art collecting. He began writing about art for various publications while earning his master's in museum studies from Harvard, developed a passion for collecting and curating, and has written several books on art collecting translated into 10 different languages, including The Black Market, A Guide to Art Collecting, and The Brilliance of the Color Black Through the Eyes of Art Collectors. He's currently a doctoral student at Columbia University Teachers College, and he's a marathon runner with a book on the way. Welcome, Charles. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. So after Charles and I connected and I delved into all that you do, I learned of this particular exhibit at the Broad and it immediately thought of a possible connection between you two on multiple levels, the arts, sports, civil rights, social justice. The timing seemed perfect to get us all together. And there really are so many different directions that we could take. But let's start with art. Charles, that is such a switch for you from finance to art. At least it seems like it. What drew you to make that change? And how would you describe your curatorial interests? It definitely does seem like a wide change, but it's really not. I, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. My mother was the first art collector I ever knew. And when I think about that experience, her taking me to museums and art fairs and festivals and not really galleries at the time because she mostly bought from um, street vendors. And later on going to MSU and, and LCC and then moving to New York City, I spent a lot of time in museums a lot of time looking at art. Even later, I, I moved to New, uh, Rome, Italy, where I traveled all over Europe, looking at the uh, old masters, European masters. And when I got back to New York City, I continued my career in banking, meanwhile starting to collect art in 2012. After some time collecting, I, it, it became sort of an obsession, and I decided I, I wanted to work around art every day. 
It's interesting how art can become an obsession and how sports can become an obsession as well, athletics. And you began collecting and you also now curate exhibits. How would you describe your interest? Do you have a a particular focus? I mean, certainly the work of black artists is prominent. Absolutely. I wanted to tackle issues, important issues to me. So the first exhibition I curated was titled, interesting enough, Operation Varsity Blues, and it was uh, surrounding the college admission scandal. When the scandal first broke out, my first thought was, this is fascinating, but what does it mean to black students who may have deserved those spots that families cheated to get? And so I I wrangled up a, a group of artists that I thought could have an interesting conversation about this topic and curating an exhibition. Um, Some of my other exhibitions have been around color theory. Um, I curated an exhibition that was simply on the color black and and the works that were created for the show were all centered around how black is used in art. It wasn't about race at all. It It was simply about how obscure black is used in art. Um, so I, I really have curated a, a diverse group of shows. I, I had a solo exhibition recently in Mexico City with the, an artist of Lebanese origin who is also homosexual, who was touching on the subject of masculinity and what it means to be a man in a very macho culture. Really, I, I, I'm very interested in a variety of topics, so I'd like to just sort of focus on on that. And another kind of follow-up question on that, too, in, in reading just a little bit of the introduction of your book, The Black Market, your advice for young, not necessarily young, but collectors of at any point in their life who are, are people who are just maybe starting to collect and starting to see that they're drawn to wanting these pieces in their, their home. What advice might you provide for them that you've shared in your book? Well, when I, when I wrote that book, I, I thought about what could I have benefited from if I knew in 2012 what I knew in 2020? And, you know, when I first started collecting, I was just buying whatever was in my budget, whatever I was interested in, and really whatever was in front of me. And I was not researching or being very specific about what I was buying, why I was buying, and how I was buying it, who I was buying it from. And so my advice to people who are interested in collecting would be first to look at as much art as possible. Take in a variety of art from a variety of sources, museums, galleries, art fairs, and art students. And then read as much as you can about art before you make your first purchase. And that would be my advice to look and read. There was something, I don't recall if it was in that book or if it was something, an interview with you that I read elsewhere, but you talked about the commonality between artists and collectors who experience, to me, it almost is something ephemeral, but distinct in the attraction and and to use the word compulsion for that 
almost possession. I mean, not that an artist possesses, but they they possess and then they give back and then a collector possesses. You described it much better, but I, I so feel that as someone who has pieces that I'm emotionally attached to and I can't imagine living without. I think art is very personal. When I'm in artist studios, I know that sometimes they have issues giving up a work of art because it's so personal to them. There's so much, not just passion, but their life experiences are on that canvas. And sometimes artists, they don't have a model. So they're painting their siblings or their friends or their nieces and nephews. So it is, it's more than just personal. It, it is actually their family and actually their friends. And so to sell that niece to some random person, it, it, I can't imagine what that must feel like, reversing it to being a collector. It's also very personal. And how do you become passionate about some little girl that's not your niece? And you're putting this portrait on your wall and you're looking at it every day and it's not your family. And you know, everyone I think culturally grew up looking at photographs of their family members. And so to have these paintings of random people it's got to feel equally as challenging for collectors to circumvent that. I think you have, you know, collectors who commission work and that's how most paintings were created in the, in the past five centuries, Uh, you know, families and individuals commissioning painters to paint their family members, because why else would you have a painting of some random person on the wall? Um, But now the, the art market is, is, is an actual, business so this is what we have and here here's where we are i think yeah yeah definitely so Stephen, let's talk a little bit about the exhibit at the broad art sports and civil rights there's a wonderful accompanying brochure and your introduction has a lot of insights and but rather than me read it i'm going to put a link in the notes to this program and i'll put a variety of links for your writing and work charles as well as for the broad um so that our our listeners can delve it further as i've done but what drew you Stephen, to create this exhibit at this time absolutely thank you melissa yeah and i, I just want to Maybe start by also commenting or sharing a little bit about the values I think both Charles and I share in this way, in the sense that I grew up also very much immersed in the arts, right? It was introduced to me at a very young age and it had always been a part of my upbringing and kind of my sensibilities about the world. But for a long time, really up and through through most of college, you know, it was never really presented to me as a career trajectory necessarily. And so it was a, a cult, something that I cultivated for a very long time, loved and enjoyed, but it was really only kind of later into my younger adulthood that it kind of emerged as something that I could actually do with my life, right? In a, in a kind of more significant way. And so that's also true with regard to this particular exhibition that you're talking about, Melissa, with, with sports. And so I grew up playing sports as a you know younger child, played all different kinds of sports, but moving up through middle school and high school, really focused in. I played baseball, basketball, and then eventually started playing lacrosse too, growing up on the East Coast. Lacrosse is a major uh, phenomenon out there. And so, you know, really throughout the course of my life, arts and sports were always intertwined for me in terms of how I existed or otherwise, you know, carried myself through the world. 
And it was also always ingrained in me that through my studies uh, and, and kind of educational trajectory that really any culture, any time throughout history, two major pillars of those cultures have always been the arts, broadly speaking, whether that be music, literature, theater, performance, and of course the visual arts, and then athletics. I have yet to find an example in which that was not the case, right? And so um, moving to the greater Lansing region almost eight years ago now, and of course coming to MSU, the presence of athletics on a major Big Ten University campus, such as such as that one, it's intense, right? It's, 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 <laughs> yes, it is. Whether or not you went there, and I'm a, an alum, it, it is the entire region. It's the entire state. Right. That's right. Exactly. I think, and it's one of those things that's, I don't even know if you can say six degrees of separation, because I think it's probably, probably permeates really a great deal of people's lives. Um, people have a connection to it one way or another. But, you know, oftentimes... There is this what I perceive as a kind of a fabricated or false division between, you know, again, sports and, and an interest in arts in that way. In the, in the sense that oftentimes it's portrayed that if you're interested in one of those things, that that's somehow opposed to or incongruous with an interest in the other. And, and that's certainly not based in any reality and certainly not my own lived experience. And so I saw an opportunity with this exhibition to bridge that divide and that's one piece of it. There is that personal story for me. But uh, of course, and I'm sure Charles knows this just as well, right, in his research and experience in the art world, there are so many artists out there that are also deeply engaged in that conversation between arts and sports and artists who look back at key moments in sports history, but really acknowledging them for what they are, which are key moments in cultural history <laughs> uh, or history more broadly. And of course, a lot of that interest often comes through the lens of social justice oriented or related issues. And so the the exhibition, the kind of foundation of the exhibition was really looking is looking at those shared values between artists and athletes and the ways that they use their kind of positions of, uh, if you can say, power and influence uh, in terms of how they use their popular status or the means of, again, they have the influence that they have through their work to kind of address you know, issues of social justice or advance issues important to them, specifically within the realm of civil rights. Because um, I think there is a lot of shared interest between, between those groups, not between every artist and every athlete, right? But certainly there is, uh, there is some commonality there. And then it's important to us at the museum, certainly in my work, to kind of also think about the context in which we're working. And, and so uh, while MSU and my experiences with that was, was a, a important seed for the project, there's an incredible history at the university in terms of uh, the advancement of civil rights related issues and social justice issues on campus through athletics. And so one of the earliest stories that I heard upon coming to campus was around the uh, recruitment strategies, specifically in the football program in the 50s and 60s at a time when specifically black athletes in the South couldn't play in their home school teams. Hmm. And so coaches like Biggie Munn and Duffy Doherty were recruiting in Texas and, and down in the South and bringing players up to Michigan to play. And at that time, created some of the most uh, the most integrated teams in all college sports. The other piece of that was that integration on campus was propelled forward significantly as a result of those recruitment efforts in wow. athletics. And so I think, you know, there's certain mythologies that get built up around some of those narratives. And of course... Many aspects of that story are absolutely true in a lot mm -hmm. of ways, but it's always more complicated than that. Of right? course. And so 
finding and discovering these incredible histories and so much truly to be celebrated and pointed out within MSU's history. It's, it created this great like layering within the exhibition between the kind of local MSU history and then national and international conversations brought forth by the artists and, and the different, again, cultural moments of sports history and, and athletes that they were uh, highlighting in their work. It's a deeply thoughtful exhibition, and it's also very lively and very attractive is probably the wrong word, but when I've been to it a couple times now, I've just been drawn to every piece for different reasons, and I wonder if you could share a little bit about some of the pieces that you selected to be in this exhibit. Absolutely. So um, one piece, what I consider to be kind of the flow and entrance of the exhibition, is a piece by Glenn Kaino, who's a Los Angeles-based artist, and he worked very closely with the athlete of the track star, Tommy Smith, who you know, famously, notoriously in 1968 at the Olympic Games in Mexico City, uh, after winning the 200 meter dash, you know, stood atop the winner's podium and raised his black glove clad fist in protest of, at that time, uh, the treatment of, you know, black people, black and brown peoples in the United States. And having that, the world watching and standing atop the winner's podium and using that moment to advocate for that issue that, uh, of course, was very important to him. That's an incredibly courageous and, and bold gesture. And and so Glenn obviously was very interested in that moment, but Tommy is, is still with us, still living. And so they he started working directly with him to actually recast his arm, uh, his actual physical wow. arm, in making that, that gesture. Um, and so then he's produced uh, a number of sculptures using the cast of that arm. And in this particular piece, there's a kind of double mirror infinity room case that's created that shows a single arm uh, sculpture presented within that but it looks like it carries on for an infinity and it's and speaking to the ways in which that particular moment is also one of, of a longer lineage within again the ways in which athletes have historically and even to the present used their their power and influence to affect social change and to have an artist represent that, they are equally part of that conversation. You know, I was thinking when you said about artists and athletes using their platform and their power to further issues. Athletes and celebrities, I think we, in this world today, those are the ones that we see the most in terms of putting their voices out there for for social change, for causes, for equity, for, you know, to have artists equally sort of leveling that playing field, which is always a bit of an odd uh, expression to me, because I don't know that you really want to level physically when you're playing, but let's not go there. Um, to have artists have their their voice and their work equally valued, and that's to me what that that exhibit does. That's it's, Charles, I wish you could be here to see that exhibit. Maybe you will have an opportunity amidst all your travels. One thing... Um, Stephen, in your again, there's a this wonderful uh, brochure that accompanies the exhibit. There is a, a a comment you made about the camaraderie uh, between the work of artists and athletes. Charles, I'm wondering how you, as a curator and a collector, but you're also an athlete. You're a, a marathon runner who has a significant accomplishment, as I understand. You've run all what are called the six stars is that the marathon majors of Berlin, New York, Boston, London, Chicago, and New York City, along with a dozen others. How does that 
resonate for you as a someone in the art world and also an athlete? What? How do you feel that camaraderie exists for you? Well, uh, before I go into that, I was just looking at this piece from the ground we fall. Wow. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I, I need to see that piece in person. Talk about it. What is it that you're seeing? Well, it looks almost like, almost like tiger stripes, uh, a Bengal tiger, um, but maybe uh, some other animal in the back. And it, it, there, it's a football pads and helmet attached with a, a, a set of chains. Uh, maybe Stephen could speak a little bit more to that before I go into marathon running. <laughs> sure, Charles. Yeah, that the work that you're looking at is a work by Esma Muhammad, and yeah. and actually, Charles uh, Esma just relocated to New York. She she's setting up her studio now, and I believe she landed in Brooklyn. So I'd be happy to make an introduction if you'd like. I, I know she's still yeah. getting set up. She originally okay. was from uh, the Toronto area. Uh, grew up in Ontario, but is of West African heritage, and so. The cloths that you see in that piece, I believe, are kind of 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 that West African origin. So speaking to longer, her own longer heritage and connections to the African continent, but then also thinking about the relationship and the position of specifically, again, black peoples within the realm of sports and those longer histories of, you know, with the chains also to slavery and things of that sort. So it's a very complicated piece, but also I think, you know, it is very disarming you know using the the familiar form of the football pads and helmets but replacing you know the logos and the kind of team uh affiliations with these uh tradition i don't know how traditional they are but certainly these fabrics that have these west african origins within them yes definitely yeah it'd be great to hear about all the pieces mm-hmm. that are in there that's it's really yeah. you know really substantial the paintings and sculptures and installations that address all different aspects of civil rights that's right um, yeah and to go back to your question like like Stephen, i always had an affinity to sports growing up I, I never played organized sports because i was never tall enough to play basketball or, or big enough to play football but i, I enjoyed playing uh, just with my friends in the in the neighborhood growing up, and then I, I took a break from sports um, in most of my adult life, and and discovered running as almost like a mistake because I got up one morning and walked to the New York Marathon's finish line, not knowing it was the New York Marathon's finish line, and was inspired, and and I ran my first marathon the next year. I caught the marathon bug, if you will, and and decided to run the Philadelphia Marathon two weeks later. But what I noticed in that second marathon is that I didn't see a whole lot of black runners. And it sparked me to go back home and and do a little research. And I, I realized that it, it wasn't something that was a big surprise to everyone else that I noticed that there weren't very many black runners and there were sort of issues with diversity and inclusion and and distance running in particular. And so that really excited me to get out and run more. And as I started to pile marathon and I love traveling. So it, it, you know, it just made sense for me to run a marathon and, and travel to exotic places and interesting places. 
but what I, I discovered in that in that, in that journey was the the six world marathon majors, and they're the sixth most important marathons in the world. Um, as you said, Boston, New York, Chicago, Berlin, London, and Tokyo. Tokyo. And and so that became a goal of mine to to run all six, and I, I completed the last of the six in Tokyo this year. Congratulations. That's, that's monumental. So you have a book coming out, a memoir, Charles, of, I believe it's titled Apropos of Running. That'll be coming out uh, very shortly this fall. Tell us a little bit about that and about yourself as a writer, because you've uh, <laughs> not only do you do these things, but then you write and, and publish about them. I've made several attempts to write books in the past and, and put the book down and never finished it. And my first book kind of sort of came out of tragedy. It was the beginning of the pandemic. I had nothing to do before starting my doctorate. I decided to write a book. And um, this new book, which is a memoir, and it's really just a snapshot of my life. It's it's based on my experience running marathons, how I started, you know, where I ran, why I ran, and what changed about the goals and that that I wanted to accomplish as an amateur marathoner, and so it sort of chronicles from 2016 or 2015 when I decided to run, and 2016 when I ran my first marathon, up to through the pandemic where I took a hiatus because of the global pandemic, and and then re-established myself as a marathon runner in 2022 where I ran two at the end of the year and and three at the beginning of this year and and I stopped the book at Tokyo um although I did run uh, Paris and and Delaware afterwards that's pretty impressive very impressive yes exactly. <laughs> and very exciting that that that's coming out uh that your book is coming out I look forward to reading that I do want to um share a quote and reference another author, also a runner and an activist, Alison Desir, quoting from her book, Running While Black. She says, runners know that running brings us to ourselves, but for black people, the simple act of running has never been so simple. It is a declaration of the right to move through the world. If running is claiming public space, why then does it feel like a negotiation? And Charles, you addressed that a little bit, but I, I wonder if you could speak to that quote specifically and what your hope your book will achieve. And then Stephen, uh, also how Desire's experience connects with the Broads exhibit. Yeah, I think there was something very important through my journey is about that freedom to move about in the world, not just the country. And that was what really inspired me to get out of the country and run London and, and Rome and Paris and Berlin and Tokyo. You know, when I remember talking to someone about the diversity issues with marathoning for specifically African-Americans, and their first you know, statement was, there can't be any diversity issues because all you need is a pair of sneakers and shorts and a t-shirt to get out and run. It forced me to think about that statement. And, and initially I thought, you're right. But then I thought, no, you're wrong because there's a safety issue with black runners to get out and run. Um, if you live in a dangerous neighborhood, it's dangerous to run. If you live in a affluent neighborhood for a black person, it's dangerous to run. 
it's expensive actually uh, to actually be a marathon runner because registration fees are expensive. If you want the latest gear, it's expensive. The most of the running sneakers are a hundred dollars, one hundred and fifty dollars, even right. up to two hundred and fifty dollars. And if you're actually training, they, they don't last long. <laughs> so you have to keep replacing the sneakers. And if you want to do things like run the six world majors, what does that cost? And not only just the, the financial costs, the time, but who has the, the luxury of time to you know, run after work, run on the weekends, take the day off and run, you know, to prepare for a, a marathon that the time is also a luxury. And, and so that, those are some of the issues I think that she tackles in her book and, and I address a little bit in my book as well. Definitely. Thank you. I have a question for Charles. Sure. Say, yeah, absolutely. I, it just seems like there's a, I don't know, there's something shared between the marathon work that you're doing, Charles, and the dedication to that. And of course, writing a book is also a kind of marathon, right? right? right. So like there's there's a kind of a, a dedication and, and an endurance that, you know, a kind of perseverance that one needs to kind of do both. And I don't know, there's something kind of interesting about how you develop that in both these different aspects of your life. Uh, but certainly there's like a shared a shared interest there. And I, and I call that out, too, because that's also part of the I think what I've learned in making the exhibition is you know one artist in the exhibition in particular wendy white talks a lot about her work in the studio and the muscle memory that's created of a, a paintbrush over and over and over again or like the kind of the ways in which you practice in the studio and then the work goes public in the same way that a basketball player might shoot a thousand free throw shots to get that stroke right before going out and playing the game and so there's this also physical kind of relationship between the work but I would think that your book writing is very much an art form in itself. And so in that way, they're really, you know, those things come together through your work, Charles. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, when I wrote the first book, I, it was just out of passion and I just wrote. And what I was really doing is trying to solve an issue. At the time, I had just finished reading maybe the 12th book I read about art collecting. And I realized there was never a book about art collecting that really spoke to the black collector who was collecting the work of black artists mm -hmm. and not only just the the, the racial part but the, the the inclusion part mm -hmm. lifting the hood of the car and showing what the engine sounds like and that was really what i was trying to do at at the time and and i think you know speaking of, of marathon and, and i wrote that book from april to august this new book, it took me about two years to write it. <laughs> and, it and it felt like it was never ending and it was never gonna be finished. And um, my editor said, stop writing, you know, you're gonna keep running marathons. And if you keep adding a marathon, you're gonna keep adding it to the book and you're never gonna finish the book. And, and she was absolutely right. And I had to stop somewhere. <laughs> And, and so I decided to stop in Tokyo, and even though I ran Paris like a, three weeks later and could have easily <laughs> like pushed the book out even further and added it. But it was a challenge to just to just say this was this was the end. And I had to stop it there. So I'm, I'm sure you both have a multitude of things that you are working on next. 
perhaps an exhibition, Stephen, that you are working on next, and and Charles, uh, likewise, uh, share that a little bit, if you would. Sure. Yeah. Obviously, things continue to be very active and busy at the museum. Um, you know, as I remain in this interim status, continue to advance the the projects and the programs that obviously are important to me and working closely with the staff and the university. But there's a lot of exciting things coming on the on the horizon. I'm trying to think. Well, I know that there's what's called the core, yes. uh, which is a, a major effort. Uh, you, you can describe it better thank than you, I can. Thank you. Melissa. No, I needed that prompting because that is that is upon us imminently. Yes. Uh, actually opening on November 10th. And and this is a major opportunity for us, uh, a major initiative for us at the museum to create a permanent space for our collection in the building, um, which, you know, since it's opening almost 11 years ago, has been a kind of issue that we've been trying to navigate, which is how to create a more permanent home for the collection. But more so than that, it is the core, as you mentioned, which stands for the Center for Object Research and Engagement. And that's also asserting the uh, incredible educational capacity and value of the collection, not only being on MSU's campus, but also in our wider community. For about a 60-mile radius, we're the only art museum of our kind, and certainly with the collection that we have of 10,000 objects spanning nearly 5,000 years of art history, um, it's an incredible asset for uh, engagement and access, you know, access to, to those histories uh, through the museum. And one thing in particular that I'm very proud of uh, that our education team has been working with a number of different partners on campus over the last couple of years is this global DEI through art program, which is using the collection of the museum to advance DEI uh, conversations and values, specifically with teachers in K-12 education across the state of Michigan. Oh, that's so wonderful. The ways that those objects uh, and artworks from our collection can kind of act as portals into those different histories, those different cultures, and offer opportunities to kind of hold conversations around those objects and, and what they embody in terms of their cultural connections. It's been incredibly successful. And so with this new space that we're opening on November 10th, that will be a, an important part of that, which is really thinking through those DEI considerations. And, and Charles has spoken that to that on a, several points here throughout the conversation. But you know, collections specifically within Western art museums or Western museums more broadly have largely privileged white male makers, right? And so that's a that's an issue that we've had to confront more significantly in recent years, and we will continue to confront. But certainly, when we think about the installation of the collection and what conversations we want to put forward that's part of the consideration there too that's wonderful powerful and charles i guess um one of the things i'm really excited about is i i have i curated an exhibition at the society of fellows and Heyman center for the humanities at columbia university it is a two-person show with an artist named kenneth reams and isabel reams um, Kenneth is an incarcerated artist that's been on death row for almost 30 years. Um, his wife, who he married while incarcerated, is a French artist. And the show is titled Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Decides. And it is really centered around their work on justice and injustice, the death penalty and and um, issues related to capital punishment. It's an exhibition that I was I was asked to curate multiple times by a colleague, and I, I immediately said no. And then when I finally 
uh, looked at the, the the work and and read a little bit about the artists, I, I felt very honored that I was even invited and 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 decided to curate the show. That's wonderful. Well, I, I know it's at will be at this space, so hopefully you'll have an opportunity for it to be elsewhere and in other other galleries. Congratulations on your upcoming book, Charles. Be very excited to see that in bookstores. And Stephen, on on the current exhibit and, and all that's coming at the Broad, just a wonderful museum. So fortunate to have that here on, on MSU's campus. It's it, To me, it's just an exciting building to look at. And I know that, that in the midst of the ivy-covered halls, the Zahadid, you know, interesting architecture is uh draws a lot of comments but it's it's a fabulous space and doing great work on campus and in the community thank you both so much and to our listeners thank you for listening online in this episode you'll find uh notes where there'll be links if you want to connect with our guests and to read more about them and the work that they do you can find other episodes of this podcast and all the lcc connect programming at lccconnect.org Special thanks to our technical producer today, Dedalian Lowry, to our video crew, and to Andy Callis for composing our theme music. I'm Melissa Kaplan, and this is Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. Featuring the staff, faculty, students, and others that helped to make Lansing's Premier College what it is today. You're listening to LCC Connect. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Massage therapy can be an effective method to combat stress and anxiety. It can also be helpful for injury treatment and prevention. The Lansing Community College Massage Therapy Clinic is open to the public and provides the opportunity for students to learn. Visit lcc.edu massage for more information. Hi, I'm John Seleggi, director of the LCC Library. Join me and my co-hosts, Amy Ewald, Robin Moore, and Abby Tebow for a new show here on LCC Connect called Written in the Stars. It's all about writers, publishers, and lovers of the written word at LCC. Written in the stars, coming soon to LCC Connect. Find updates at lccconnect.org. I'm Ben Utech. I played high school, college, and pro football, helping my team win the 2006 championship. My career ended after I suffered my fifth concussion. More than a million athletes suffer a concussion each year. The American Academy of Neurology recommends athletes thought to have a concussion be immediately removed from play and assessed by a healthcare professional trained in concussion. This isn't just about sports. It's about your brain. When in doubt, sit it out. Learn more at aan.com concussion. A message from the American Academy of Neurology. Lansing Community College welcomes transfer students. Transfer students may apply transfer credits towards their LCC degree, certificate, or transfer program. Learn more at lcc.edu slash you belong. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Hello, friends, and welcome to Coach Cuts Corner. 
Streaming bright from Michigan's capital city, this podcast is dedicated to helping you better understand the who, the what, and the why of mental performance, personal growth, and Lansing Stars baseball. Coach Cuts Corner, brought to you by iWash. In collaboration with Lansing Community College. And now here's your host, Stephen Cutter. Welcome back to Coach Cuts Corner. Today I'm joined in studio by Stars baseball coach Mo and guest Stars baseball player Breck Baranowski. Today we're covering Breck's journey and what it's like playing college baseball in the capital city of Lansing. How are you doing this morning, Breck? Good, Coach. How are you? Pretty well. Are you prepared for this podcast? Have you been on one before? I uh, haven't been on one, but I've watched many, listened to many, so I'm kind of excited. Excellent. Coach Mo, how's your morning going? Uh, great morning so far. How about you? That's it, my morning's been pretty excellent. Been pulled in a lot of different directions, but that's not super uncommon for any other morning that I have. And I'm just happy to be in studio right now with you guys. Breck, uh, did you play multiple sports when you were growing up? I did. I did. Uh, not only, you know, myself, but my sister and, you know, my family having, having you know, everyone around me play multiple sports kind of kind of grew on me uh, in many factors. So, you know, you played, play? played baseball. I played soccer, hmm. played a little bit of wrestling, a little bit of basketball in there as well. Okay. What were what else besides baseball were you good at? I would have to say basketball. Uh, really? Wasn't the, wasn't the best shooter. How but, tall are you? Uh, well, right now I'm pushing six one, okay. but right. I was I was a late bloomer. But yeah. I was pretty pretty There's good on defense. Spurt coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and you're from Illinois, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely a good basketball state for sure. Not as good as Indiana. It's up for debate. It's up for debate. <laughs> <laughs> So in middle school, were you still playing all those sports? It slimmed down a little bit. I kind of realized um, slowly where where my talents uh, still were. So I uh, slimmed down from from like, uh, soccer. Kind of didn't realize that maybe it kind of wasn't my speed. So uh, it was more in middle school, baseball, wrestling, uh, and a little bit of basketball. Okay, very very interesting. And then what about at high school? Uh, in high school, uh, switched up a little bit, slimmed down even more. So uh, my freshman, sophomore year of high school, uh, played both baseball and football uh, and kind of realizing the importance of uh, baseball and the recruiting game and all that, um, I really needed to step it up and focus on baseball. Uh, and I didn't want to risk injury in football. And what high school did you go to? I went to Joliet Catholic Academy. Okay. And what was that like? It was really interesting. Um, just a v- very great athletic uh, overall school. Uh, they lead Illinois in state championships mm-hmm. in football, and I think they're up there as well in baseball. Uh, I know my year we won, we won one as well, and then this following year the uh, the twenty threes got it done with a back to back. So no, it's been it was really good. I uh, just met a lot of a lot of quality people over there, and uh, just obviously it's a Catholic school, so uh, learned and not only academically but through my faith and faith in Jesus. Nice, very cool. What do you remember about Little League? What sticks out? I know, uh, you know, yeah. when when I was I was thinking about that as you were talking about playing multiple sports, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I have things that stand out when I, when I played Little League baseball, and it's not so much I couldn't tell you what our records were, 
um, things like that. But I do, I do remember very significant things. I do remember winning different things. I remember, um, having a lot of success. I also have a picture at some point where I had jeans on. <laughs> I don't know why, but I, I was, I was wearing jeans, you know, in my team picture. So yeah, there's, there's some things that stand out. What do you remember about little league? Uh, I would say without a doubt, uh, what comes to mind first is the Bosco sticks at the concession stand where I was growing up. Yeah, the Troy Titans. It's just the concession stand was probably the favorite part as soon as I'd get to the field, let alone. But uh, yeah, besides the food aspect there, I remember, uh, especially in Mustang and Pinto Ball, those pitching machines and being so happy when I got to face those just because I kind of knew what was coming. Okay. And uh, had a lot of had a lot of homers homers then, and I always miss those home run derbies that we used to have in those leagues because it was always so fun and competitive. Gotcha, Mo. What do you remember about little league? Yeah, I think one of my main things is I remember that the first team I played on, they misordered the jerseys. So nice. Uh, we had probably about twelve kids on the team, and six of us were wearing red jerseys, and the other six were wearing blue. <laughs> <laughs> so our team was actually called the because I was from Wisconsin and they uh, you know you've heard of Kimberly Paper Company yeah we played in Kimberly so um, our the red team I was on the red I my my jersey was red so it would say Paper Makers <laughs> that was the name and then the blue team was sponsored by the local police academy so it was called the they were the cops so our team just became the Paper Maker Cops <laughs> that was a heck of a name yeah and another thing my dad always used to tell me. Uh, that when baseball because you have to throw your jersey should be loose so he'd always order me a jersey that was like three or four sizes too big and i just look ridiculous <laughs> just absolutely terrible in every single photo well breck you've got a pretty good arm but your your jerseys aren't very loose no and uh does that affect in, your throwing do you feel like well not really because uh, i i mean you've probably seen it in practice i tend to uh roll my sleeves up a little bit uh <laughs> not a big fan of of uh of loose loose jerseys i always like my stuff fitted uh, they used to do that like in the what the 50s or 60s and they put their smokes in there you know and just keep them in there yeah no i think uh just as kind of as maybe as far as like a maybe a speed factor in there as as a baseball player kind of having more uh things that are fitted to me Uh, i don't like necessarily things being loose especially uh like my cleats and stuff like that because it'll affect my feet and stuff right well, maybe you, you should maybe you should move up to a 4x jersey and let's yeah, see if yeah, that yeah. arm gets better right <laughs> I, I think it's worth a shot but you don't see sprinters wearing loose clothing so there, there's something to it breck why do you think baseball coaches have to wear baseball pants during games uh, do, do, do you well, you I, don't see football coaches wearing football pants no it's it's a good question because uh, throughout my lifetime of playing baseball, I've I've seen it I've seen it in both where we have even coaches here at Lansing who wear t-shirt and shorts, and you know we'll even you know I've seen guys where their well their coaches will wear those baseball pants. Um, I think it's it's more of a, a traditional thing, uh, you know maybe coaches uh, not really able to maybe move on from maybe some old school type things. Uh, okay. I think. Yeah, Kinda. we were just talking about that that the other day, and it's it's unique because you don't see basketball coaches wearing basketball shorts, mm-hmm. you know, which would seem to fit, but they don't wear them, you know. Mm-hmm. And so baseball is one of those sports where you wear what your players have, and a lot of times you'll see coaches in full jersey too, you know. Yeah. And well, I, I mean, you you know, you obviously see that in the pros. 
and stuff like that. That's just, you know, obviously the rules nowadays. But in my opinion, I don't think those coaches are coming in the game anytime soon. Yeah, and I think you see a lot more sweatshirts and coaching jackets and stuff at the pro level, too. Uh, what kind of influence has your dad been on you? And your your family's got a little bit of pro ball lineage. Mm-hmm. So if you want to talk about impact with your father and then maybe just a little bit about, you know, family lineage too. Right. So, um, you know, my dad played ball at actually at Joy Catholic as well. So just that influence alone, you know, started throughout high school. Did he win a state championship? Uh, he did not know, but okay. his team was always known as the. So you've the got big you, you've you've got one oh. on them, the big chokers. Yeah, I they, were, they, were, uh, they were always undefeated, and then the last game, I think, I guess they uh, oh. they couldn't get it done. So yeah, even in football, little too much complacency, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But um, he went on to uh, yeah Missouri Southern, and it was a Hall of Famer there in 2018, and had the home re- home run record until this year until. Uh, <laughs> guy in his uh, in his fifth year broke it which I don't consider broken you know he took that fifth year to, to do it okay. so but uh no yeah without a doubt he had that um that lenience on me to play baseball and kind of even now he'll still play uh baseball in like an old man league so it's always funny to if I have time to get out there and, and get out there and you know watch him play a little bit and so even when it's I, similar to what happens here in Lansing he's playing yeah. in one as well <laughs> exactly yeah nice. and uh and even when I'm home you know he uh he still wants to throw me BP and still wants to play catch so um, he's, you know, without a doubt, definitely started me at a young age through my competitiveness in the baseball world. And he was drafted? Yeah, he, uh, he got drafted uh, right after Missouri Southern. I believe he was actually through free agency. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, catcher for the Atlanta Braves organization, uh, playing minors for a little bit. I believe he got, he got hurt there in the uh, spring training there for the pros, uh, from my understanding. The uh, they had clay uh, on their on their field there, and I think as you, uh, I think he had a home run, and I believe he was either around, rounding second base or in the batter's box. His foot caught that clay a little, you know, dug in a little mm-hmm. bit too much, and just absolutely tore up his leg. And unfortunately, that was it. Incredible story. Now, what about your great grandpa? I was doing a little bit of digging, so yeah. tell me about him. So uh, uh, my family's obviously Polish, and uh, my my. Uh, grandmother's side uh, her father got drafted to the White Sox he was a pitcher however um, his father told them that he wasn't allowed to uh, for reasons I still question why I have no clue but he wanted him to uh, to to go be like a soldier in the army and stuff mm-hmm. like that and be a hard worker so it was it was really upsetting for him now and I couldn't imagine if that that happened to me coach Moe's a big White Sox fan do you know that coach Moe? Uh, I missed that one in the history books, but uh, it's a good story. I'll make yeah. sure they uh, they add it back in. That's cool. So after after winning a lot at the high school level, you went mm-hmm. you went on to college. What's your college journey been like? Obviously, you're here at Lansing mm-hmm. now, but that's not where you started. So you want to talk a little bit about how your college journey's been? Right. So, you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, through 2020 in the transfer portal, it was just a crazy time for you know, not only myself, but the guys around me, you know, they're just the questions of um, not only where am I going to play or what division I'm going to play at. So during that time, I, I knew I was going to go to the junior college level just because um, I saw guys were getting eligibility back and guys were allowed to transfer. So I thought that was the best decision for me. So the previous school I was at, um, another junior college, uh, obviously, coming in I knew it wasn't going to be the best kind of situations just because of uh you know reviews and stuff like that of players that that played there before and kind of what I saw coming in so 
I knew I was already going to have my hands full with, um, you know, what I needed to do when I headed in there and, um, what I kind of had to expect out of myself. And it was more of a, more of a confidence thing in myself and, and, you know, to not really question much and not really hesitate, just do and, you know, do whatever it takes to, to go to the next level. And at what point did you realize that wasn't going to be a good fit for you? Uh, I would say a little bit later, uh, there in the fall season of this past year, um, kind of how the, uh, the fall was going, the, the recruiting wasn't really that great and the coaching staff kind of, uh, wasn't seeing eye to eye on things yeah, and kind of, which wasn't really, it happens. Yeah. 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 It wasn't, wasn't, you know, relaying, uh, things to the team that well. And it kind of as you know, as far as like a training aspect of things as well, it just wasn't going to be a place where I can really grow that much. We talk a lot about our belief systems and our mindsets here at Lansing and, and I think, think when people struggle they if they can be self-aware of it enough they start looking at where their their belief systems are and typically they're pretty low at those times and could you relate to that at all oh yeah with without without a doubt in my mind I took a you know hit in that sense as well just because I've I've had um, you know teammates and friends who've played at the division one level and even uh, those rival schools like Parkland and Heartland and stuff like that and kind of seeing them uh, thrive and stuff like that. And then me kind of, I don't want to say maybe in the shadows or, mm-hmm. but it maybe at a, definitely a, a low point, definitely in my baseball career. Pressure is a privilege, but I'm assuming you've had a fair amount of pressure on you since you've gotten out of high school, just with that comparison, which, you know, mm-hmm. can be the thief of joy, certainly. Mm-hmm. But comparison is, you know, we, we spend a lot of time looking at different things. How'd you find Lansing? Uh, so the summer after I graduated, uh, I joined Catholic my 18U season. Uh, played for the D-backs here in Michigan. Were you good? I would say I was. Yeah, during that time, yeah, I was pretty good there. Okay. I was playing. Uh, Belief system pretty high. Yeah, at that time, yes, mm-hmm. yes. I was playing, playing, loose, playing fun. Um, I uh, I was playing like I said for the D-backs, and we had a game against a team out here in Michigan called USA Prime. Okay. Uh, I believe we were playing at West Bloomfield and uh, it was, it was a great game. And I believe coach Mo and I think Helmick were there as well. We were uh, indeed uh, checking out some of the already uh, Lansing recruits. Um, I just happened to possibly pop up on the radar. And I believe uh, one of my buddies here at Lansing, Matthew Fountain, who was on that team kind of told me uh, a couple of weeks after the game, FYI, uh, Coach Mo was, uh, you know, asking about you, thinking uh, okay. you know, if you had any interest in coming out here. And sure enough, here I am now. What's your experience been like since you've gotten here? You know, there was a lot thrown at you early. You had a couple college experiences already, so it wasn't like you were, you know, fresh out of high school. And with those kind of eyes, your eyes had been seasoned a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then you come in and there was a lot going on, housing. There was a lot of things that happened early. And now now we're, you know, about seven, eight weeks in. What's your experience been like here? So far, well, now it's been great. But those those first couple of weeks was without a doubt a struggle. Um, kind Why? of mentally questioning myself there just because of, of, you know, like I said, not being able to move in yet uh, to my room and, and having practice, you know, six out of the seven days a week. And, and Where the, were you staying at? I was uh, in between staying in a hotel and uh, crashing on the couches there in the uh, in the apartment, so I wasn't okay. able to really bring everything uh, you know around me. But the mental aspect, I think, definitely was the was the biggest thing. I you know I was uh, on the phone there with Mo uh, before we started, 
And I was, you know, asking them about it and, and stuff like that in detail. And I kind of didn't really realize uh, what it was until I actually got here. Um, and even now, uh, just seeing myself uh, actually change within a couple of weeks is, is pretty mind boggling. <laughs> Yeah. And that's what, uh, that's what development looks like. And, you know, people have said, a lot of people have said that baseball specifically is a sport that's 90% mental and 10% physical. And I'm not sure where those numbers actually lie, but I am certain that a large piece of anything that you do is based on your belief system and, and, and how you, how you feel about yourself and what you think is possible. And you will attract you know, really positive things. That doesn't mean it's always going to be sunny in 75. It doesn't mean that you're always going to have success, but what it does mean is you're going to have a lot of truth in what you're doing. And, and through those processes, you'll find a lot more happiness. You'll find that you're more relaxed. You know, we had a, we met as a team, I think it was yesterday and we started, we were just talking about our last scrimmages that we had and we try to recap those, uh, you know, maybe a day or two after we've had those and talk about those a little bit. And you'd mentioned something about your mental processes and what you had done and, and how it equated to the success that you had. Do you want to touch on that? Yeah. Uh, so common, uh, you know, coming into the fall, especially our first mid Michigan scrimmage, uh, you know, I did not play well just because my mental performance at that point was, was really out the door. I, I wasn't thinking I wasn't going back to what I wrote down, all those meetings that we had as a team. Uh, especially the 617 breathing, I just kind of went out there and realized, um, you know, here I am, let's go. And not realizing that I actually sped up the game a little bit too, too fast on myself. Uh, so at that post game, uh, I kind of realized what I really needed to do. Uh, and so I really took a step back, focused not only on, you know, only on my breathing, but kind of going back to those notes that we did mental um, yeah. and, and slowly just look at those before games and take pictures of maybe some things that kind of stood out to me. Uh, and then as well as finding, uh, you know, some tunes and some podcasts that fit me uh, as far right. as, you know, calmness and making sure I was locked in before the game. Right. And how much do you think that impacts you when you play? It's, it's astronomical. It's huge. It's not only, you know, my confidence, but mm -hmm. the, the level of kind of where, where I play my game, if that makes sense, where my aggressiveness, everything is would be would be there. Uh, there was no hesitation. These you know these past couple of weeks, it was more. Uh, let's you know let's get it on. I'm not afraid. Um, I got my guys behind me. I'm I'm ready to roll. How much has fear of failure affected you in baseball? Uh, it has tremendously. I know uh, even Coach Cut has uh, even. You know you've even mentioned before. You know uh, the baseball gods will will. <laughs> kind of give you a scare you know if you don't want the ball the ball will find you and that's kind of something that's mm. definitely stood out to me uh with you know any and all hesitation there there will be a play your way so um and it, you know at the end of the day if there was any kind of low self-esteem low confidence moment uh in baseball not only myself but through my teammates you can kind of see it and it'll kind of eat you alive a little bit for sure final question why why is it different here we use the word uncommon a lot but, you know, we can we will sit on here and we'll talk about it. We won't necessarily hit all on it at one time, but we'll talk about what makes it different here. And having a fresh perspective like yours, where you've been you've been around a little bit and you're starting to 
see the tip of the iceberg just a little bit and you're getting better and your 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 belief systems improving and the fun factors going up but but why is it what why is it different here i would say first and foremost i think the mental aspect of the game i've never seen uh, not only coaching staff but you know a team that focuses so much on on that part of the game i know it's always talked about everywhere but i don't see anyone ever doing it <laughs> so the fact that we kind of do this on a day-to-day basis is is phenomenal i think it's definitely changed my way of thinking even in when i go out and step across those white lines and i'd also have to say uh you know as far as competitiveness um when we started out, I didn't know what to think about, you know, fighting, competing for a spot. You know, you've had programs where, uh, you know, all they want you to do is, you know, kind of maybe treat each other's teammates, you know, like crap and just mm-hmm. go out there and play. But but here it's it's more like a family and you're pushing yourself each and each and every one of your, um, uh, you know, one of your guys is pushing you to be the best that you can be. Uh, it's not really about, you know, going out there. Uh, you know, and necessarily, you know, taking the guy's job, but it's more about what can you do and what can you bring to the team and what, what's a hundred percent look like for you. And, uh, and without a doubt, once I realized that, I realized that uh, I can go even farther more in this game. Good stuff. Appreciate it. Until next time, thank you to all of our listeners and coach Mo and Breck for joining me today in the WLNZ studios. Go stars. Coach Cuts Corner is recorded live in the WLNZ studios. Engineering and production assistance are provided by Dedalian Lowry. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it and follow us on all the platforms of social media. You can find more about our program at lccstars.com. And donations to our baseball program can be made at the same site. See you next time. This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.